Hi, I'm Rick Schwartz. Buenos dias, world. I'm Marco Wendt. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization which oversees the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. Well, Marco, can you believe it? We are at the end of season two of Amazing Wildlife. Oh, man, that's right. This is episode 20. And although I'm pretty bummed to close out season two, rumor has it we'll be working on season three soon enough. That's true. That's true. And although this episode will wrap up season two, it's going to be a really cool episode for us. Oh, I know. I'm so stoked. I can't wait to go out to the biodiversity reserve. That's part of the safari park. Oh, it's going to be great to record in the wide open space, too. But Honestly, before we head out there into the wilds of Southern California coastal sage scrub, I do want to make sure our audience knows that the biodiversity reserve at the safari park is not something that a guest can go to or or go into. However, they can see it all around. All the undeveloped land in the area of the safari park is technically coastal sage scrub. And part of the actual biodiversity reserve can be seen from the guest areas while you are visiting the safari park. All you need to do is look at the hills surrounding the park. Of course, there's more to it than what you can see, but it's all there. Yeah, that's a really good point, Rick. I mean, I'm glad you helped clear that up. I know for some people, they're so excited to be at the safari park to see the wildlife that we have there. They might even forget that there's also a huge amount of local wildlife living all around. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, to take it beyond our own coastal sage scrub ecosystem, I hope this episode also reminds people to take the time to to get outside and enjoy their own local wildlife and natural spaces. Yeah, agreed, Marco. I completely agree. And the Biodiversity Reserve is a great place for our teams of researchers and scientists to better understand the local environment. And they do this by going out there and doing the work, not just sitting in a lab or looking over paperwork. It's a great example of how anyone can learn more about their local wildlife. Just get outside and do some observations. Oh, hey, Rick, speaking of getting outside, is it time to go? Can we go now? (laughs) Yeah, you know what, Marco? It is time to go. Yes, vamonos. I am Charlie De La Rosa. I am the Natural Lands Program Manager for the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Charlie, can you tell us and obviously our listeners too, where are we right now? Where are we standing? Right now, we are deep in the heart of the Safari Park Biodiversity Reserve. And the Safari Park Biodiversity Reserve is a 900-acre coastal sage preserve that's part of the Safari Park footprint in the San Pasquale Valley in San Diego's North County. And this space, though, is not something our public would normally see when they come to visit Safari Park, right? Not normally. Something they would see, I guess, if they look up into the hills in the surrounding area, though. Yes, exactly. So if you're driving down on Highway 78, you're going to look to your left, look to your right, and you're seeing elements, the vegetation type that we're conserving here on the Biodiversity Reserve. Nice. Yeah, and it's a beautiful area, you guys. We're on top of a hill right now. I can see the safari balloon off in the distance. And also, I think it's worth acknowledging that we're on the traditional land of the Sample Skull Band of Mission Indians and the Kumeyaay people. So there's a long-standing history with the people, the native indigenous people, and this land, and also now with, with us in the safari park here. So it's really great. Thanks, Charlie, for taking the time. My pleasure. I think it's also to go on further with what Marco said is not only is there a deep cultural history here in the land that we are on and there were people who were a part of this land long before we ever showed up. And now part of your work, Charlie, 
I guess we'll start with why is it important that this land has been set aside? There's a couple of ways that I can answer that question. One is that this is an incredibly imperiled habitat type. If you think about it, Southern California is really densely populated and people want to live here. People are continuing to move here. And a lot of the habitat that covered our coastal areas in Southern California now has towns and houses and farms and other types of development. So it's really important for us to conserve elements of that type of habitat that are still remaining. And the other thing to keep in mind is we're in a biodiversity hotspot in uh, San Diego County in Southern California. That means that we have a really high number of species for the area, but it also means that we have significant threats to a lot of species. There's a lot of rare species or endangered species. And I want to add too, when you're hearing species, it's not just animals. Not just animals. What else? Plants. Fungi, there's a lot of different things out there. Stuff that people don't normally think of, but (laughs) when you speak of biodiversity and the value of that, and when I say value, I don't mean monetary, the value of keeping the ecosystem balanced and being a biodiversity hotspot and having this land set aside now for you and others to come out here and and observe and study and understand, A, what the land needs and what it's going through, and, and therefore then the fungi, the plants, the animals, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, all sorts of stuff, insects. Exactly. Yeah, I love the connectivity of it as well. You know, even for native San Diegans, as the year goes on, the landscape transforms, doesn't it? You and I have been on little nature walks out here before, and from spring to what we see now, there's there's still activity of life. There's still connections. And when Rick, you know, you were talking about animals and plant life, I always go back to like that prickly pear adventure that you and I had. Can you talk about that particular plant species and why it's so unique here, here in this sure. area? Yeah. yeah. Wait, before you go, I mean, we're out here. Is there anywhere we can walk to go look oh, at Oh, that's a good you point. Bet. Let's go find um, one, right? Let's oh, go find some somewhere else. Let's go, guys. Well, if, you, if we look down the hill here, yeah, you can see... Yeah, that's the hillside over there. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. see we'll those, those light there. green patches yeah. just covered with prickly pear. Prickly pear is kind of a blanket term for a number of different species of cactus that are in the Opuntia genus. Uh-huh. And if you've ever seen cactuses that look like they have Mickey Mouse ears, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, totally or, right. or donkey ears, <laughs> those are generally going to be Opuntia cactuses. And now what we're looking at, we're looking down a hill yeah. and we're looking at slopes that are gently kind of sloping down into the San Pasqual Valley and they're sloping in a southern direction. And if you could see what we're seeing, we're looking at a dotted hillscape with tons of these little green patches of cactus. We have over 200 acres of cactus-dominated coastal sage scrub in the biodiversity Mm -hmm. reserve. And that's why I think this is a very, very endangered subtype of that habitat. And there's a lot of species that rely on the cactus. So it's this whole little ecosystem within an ecosystem. Wow. Everyone's being a kid around here eating in Spanish at Dunas, no? Like the little yes. cactus fruit, you know? And, and I never really thought about the connectivity with the local wildlife, too. They need that for nourishment, for some for moisture, right? Because we're in a drier area here. There's very few plants out here that produce a fruit that's so full of sugars, yeah. full of nutrients. And when, if you can imagine, 200 acres of prickly pear starts fruiting, it's insane. It right? looks like Christmas. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> red <laughs> fruits all over the place. And all different animals will take advantage of that resource. So I've seen ravens. Ravens will like to peck the fruits and they'll eat the fruit from the inside out. They'll Uh, they'll leave just a little shell. Smart. So you walk around and you can see evidence of different animals that are taking advantage of this delicious smorgasbord of food. Bees, foxes, coyotes, and people. 
And the prickly pear was an incredibly important food resource, seasonal food resource for the Kumeyaay, the Payam Kawicham, and other people that live in Southern California. You mentioned some of the wildlife that enjoy the prickly pear. You're out here quite a bit doing quite a bit of work. And also you have eyes when you're not here. You've got camera traps set up and everywhere else. What's some of the wildlife you know lives out here on this land we're currently on? You would be shocked because there's so much cool stuff. And I think there's a lot of people in Southern California that are used to going out and recreating. And then you might see some signs and the signs say that there's cougars and that there's foxes and coyotes, but you don't necessarily run into them every day. But on the cameras, we see them. They are here. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So we have seen pumas in the biodiversity reserve. Really exciting to see them. The fact that there's a apex predator that's been able to persist in these fairly small patches of habitat that mm-hmm. are left is just, it's miraculous. It's yeah, incredible. It's kind of one of the beauties of the safari park, I think, right. where guests come in and, you know, they're expecting to see wildlife from Africa, Australia, all over the globe. But especially those who work here, we get excited over the local wildlife. Of we were course. Just, yeah, right. We were just yeah. talking about the zone tail hawk we just saw recently. And that's one of the things about this reserve that I just, um, we're talking, I'm seeing birds flying around that I, I just love it so much. There's so much local wildlife can benefit from this area, this reserve that we have here at the safari park. Yeah, I'll just throw some quick numbers. Two species of skunk. A lot of people don't know that. Oh, yeah. There's a striped skunk that we all know and love, mm-hmm. and then there's a spotted skunk. Look that one up because they're super they're cute. They're great. They're very cute. Um, I agree. They're like one of my favorites. Yeah, right. Head sand when they're spraying. They're right? really great. Kids, look them up. Yeah. 16 species of snakes that we've Whoa. documented here on the Biodiversity Reserve. We have an amazing herpetologist who's been doing 20-plus years of field work here, and that's a very high diversity of snakes three species of rattlesnakes. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe scary, but they're also no. just incredibly important elements to this ecosystem. Yeah, rosy boa, king snake. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so, so many. And we were talking earlier, you know, the benefits for local wildlife, for us, for indigenous people, but also... Side note, it sounds a little odd, but we're utilizing this area, too, for projects, right? Conservation projects. Yeah, right. Our, we had the earlier episode with our conservation tech team, yeah, that's Charlie. Right. They were telling us that they will use this space in conjunction with you to test out different equipment. Do you know off the top of your head, what are some of the things that have been tested here in the proving grounds, if you will? Because we do have some element of being able to get here, but yet it's also away from things that now has been maybe deployed or used elsewhere in the world. Yeah, that's a really unique feature of the Biodiversity Reserve. We're so close to our conservation science team. One of the core purposes of this land is to use it as a living laboratory, to be able to test out technologies that our teams are developing, first off, to monitor biodiversity, to conserve species here, but also in other places where they're working around the world. So some great examples, our Conservation Technology Lab is developing a lot of really interesting tools that use artificial intelligence, that use machine learning to help basically to sort images and to send alerts. So we're working on a system, for example, that if you've ever seen a security camera, right? Mm -hmm. You know how they can pan and usually there's a guy at a desk and he's moving it around. (laughs) Well, imagine a security camera that's constantly watching a landscape and it's taking pictures and it's pushing them through algorithms that help to identify what those pictures are. And when it sees something that it wants to see, so they're doing this for polar bears. When it sees a polar bear on a white landscape, it'll zoom in and it'll follow it automatically. Very, very cool. So they're working on that at the Conservation Technology Lab and this is a place where they can deploy it, where we don't, they don't have to fly to Svalbard to do that. (laughs) You know, they just have to drive 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice resource. They're working on some other vision-related 
systems. We have a system that they call Cougar Vision, and it uses a network of traditional cellular trail cameras, which any of the listeners of this program can go and buy them. Uh-huh. You can find them on Amazon. And they're essentially motion-triggered cameras that have a SIM plan, and then you can check the camera on an app. So that's fun, but you have to manually check it. So what our team has done is they've developed some artificial intelligence tools to go through those images and to sort them into piles, into you know different species, And when it sees something that you want to see, then it can send out alerts, it can send text alerts and things like that. So it's very cool stuff. And they're testing that out here. That is so cool. Just standing here looking across San Francisco Valley, Safari Park's down the hill and off in the distance and hearing you talk about all the things that have happened and are happening out here and knowing that this space has been set aside. And we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that while you're driving Safari Park, look to your left and right, you're you're in this amazing biodiverse ecosystem. But it's just a reminder, I think, or it should be a reminder for everyone that sometimes just the wildlife in your own backyard is so cool. If you take the time to set aside, you know, watching and observing and being a part of what's your local and native species and and what are they going through and what can you do to help them? And I really appreciate that. And and then that leads me into, Charlie, is there any particular for you personally, a good story from you as far as either a moment you've had out here or an experience you've had, had out here that has been meaningful for you? I mean, I think what you touched on is 100% true. There's meaning and there's incredibly interesting stories hidden in everything here. So I've had experiences where I've come across morteros, you know, rock slicks and grinding spots from from the Kumeyaay people who lived here for thousands of years. That's incredibly meaningful. Not not only because it's a representation of the people who were here, but also because it tells you something about the ecosystem that was around them. There's so many things here that are the same. We're looking at these hills, the rock piles, they've been here for thousands of years, the plants, even some of these big laurel sumacs, these big shrubs that we can see. I have aerial images that are almost 100 years old, and you can see the exact same plants in the exact same spots. They're very persistent and very, very resilient. But then there's a lot of things that have changed as well. Yeah, it reminds me of that connectivity again, growing up in this area specifically, going hikes like like Hodges. And when you just said that, man, it gave me goosies just thinking like <laughs> like I interacted with a with a sumac here that has been here for years and years and years throughout history. That, Generations. Gen- yeah. yeah, right. They're yeah. all we're all connected in that way. And I am gonna say it again, you guys, like when you come to the park, it's not just seeing the wildlife that we're offering, but the senses of the area too, Charlie, right? Like we talk about the smell in particular, like I've said this before, like when we travel around the world, we come back. And for me, like when I smell sage or chaparral, like to me, that's home, that's San Diego. And you had a cool story yourself about it, right? Can you share that story? Sure. Um, well, I moved to Southern California in 2007. So years and years ago. Yeah. And I moved from North Florida and I came out to start my first field biology job working on Catalina Island. And I remember that it was so dry. It was July. <laughs> right. And everything was dusty. I was coming from the pine flatwoods and the cypress hammocks and these incredibly tall, big trees, mm-hmm. Spanish moss dripping down, you know, crystal Beautiful. clear yeah. springs. And I came out to this landscape and there was nothing that was higher than my chest. You know? <laughs> no trees. <laughs> yeah, right. And everything was brown, brown, brown. Everything was dusty and brown. And I thought, what have I done? <laughs> and... You know, I, I like to tell this story because I like to, there's so many people who are new to Southern California, yeah, so many visitors yeah. and so many people moving here. And maybe they're thinking the same thing. And I want to tell them how I connected 
with this ecosystem. Please. What it came down to for me was the smells. There's so many different species in the coastal sage and chaparral that have developed they're, you know, essentially chemicals, but they produce these incredible aromas. So think of a sage. Right. I mean, it's so strong, so musky. The California sagebrush, it's actually not a sage, it's in the sunflower family. Oh. Very similar types of smells. All of these different plants have their own smells. And think about smelling something from your childhood and the memories yeah. that that gives you. In just a few short years, you will, you know, go out and touch a plant. And, well, make sure it's not poison oak. <laughs> but, That's a good point, kids. Please. Yeah, yeah. Ask your parents in, first. Get a book. Yeah. <laughs> but make that connection yes. because it, it'll go into your heart. Yeah. And then you, you'll never be able to get it out again. Yeah. My parents taught me, like, you rub the leaf. Again, identifying the proper plant. And they'd make me smell it. Like, mijo, smell this. And it, it just reminds me, those are the best memories, I think, of San Diego for me. It's the smell of that ecosystem here. There's kind of a big picture conservation story here. Conservation is all about people, and it's about people's connection to the land. Yeah, it's about diversity. It's about the plants and animals. But really, it's about people being invested and caring. And I think that's really the philosophy that we're bringing to the San Diego Zoo and to the Biodiversity Reserve. We have programs working with the San Pasqual Band of Mission Indians, working with other tribal partners to provide access to harvest cactus fruit, to help us with our restoration work. We want scientists to come here. We bring out educational groups and we want guests to see it too. Yeah. We're working with our Safari Experiences team to put together guest experiences that can help to tell these stories too. Getting people invested, you know, there's a trade-off. There's a whole story about loving something to death and I'm sure you've heard that yes. about national parks and everything. I think it's more dangerous for people to not care. And yeah, totally. there's so many other things that we can distract ourselves with now. So, you know, come out and get invested. That's the bottom line. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to what you said where, you know, you first came out here and it was brown and dusty and dry. <laughs> and like, oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> right now, we are right at the, just the edge of the rainy season possibly starting for us. They've called for a wet winter here mm -hmm. in the San Diego area. And looking around, there's a lot of dry looking colors, browns and, and barely any greens and some tans, but then occasionally you see these sticks with these white flowers on them. And I point that out because for me, it's always been one of those things where it's like, if you slow down and it, sure, we're driving by on the road, it looks like it's a bunch of dry, dead plants, but these, right. there's so much life and vitality. And as soon as those rains hit, we're gonna see everything green up and everything changes. But even in the dry moments, right at the end of the dry season, there's still some plants out there with little flowers on them, just being a part of this ecosystem. And it's so cool. And I want to go back to something else you mentioned too, Charlie. The idea that it's about the people. It's something that Marco and I have talked a lot about this season, talking with other conservation groups, whether it's our you know, in-house folks or whether it's our partners. What would you say is probably one of the most important things the average person could do in their day-to-day -day routines to assist with conservation? I think we need to start small. It's hard to get back and connect with nature. It takes time. Mm -hmm. Some people might not have the privilege to take off after work and go for a hike. Right. Whatever you can do to just take interest in your local ecosystem, learn a little bit. There's a lot of really great online resources. There's iNaturalist, an amazing tool that can help you to identify plants and animals that are in your backyard. You start small and teach your kids. Bring your kids to the zoo and talk to the interpreters there. Inspire a passion for nature. I think that real change, it has to start with the young. 
So I guess just get interested. Yeah. You know, start that passion. I love it. Inspired. It's simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one other story that is fresh to this area that is, you know, borderline breaking news. You had mentioned that when we were talking about the different species that live out here that you've seen and you were super excited about an apex predator. And recently there's been a development with the puma or mountain lion or cougar, whatever you want to call it, here on this, this open space. Can you share with our listeners what has developed? Yeah, so I'll try to keep a long story short. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> we have a mountain lion research program that's a collaboration with our partners at UC Davis at the Wildlife Health Center. And essentially that project has to do with monitoring, you know, using GPS collars and trail cameras to to get an idea about population dynamics in Southern California mountain lions and then also deterrent research. And the idea with deterrence is that we're trying to basically provide non-lethal alternatives for people who are having human-wildlife conflict with mountain lions, for livestock owners and things like that. The development was that we've been watching a mountain lion who was collared here in the Biodiversity Reserve so she was carrying a GPS collar for about two years and we were keeping tabs on her and, you know, using her data for research. And she recently was killed. She was killed by somebody who um, she was attacking their livestock. Mm. And this is just a tragic reality. If you took out the species and took out the location, you would think that this is a thing that was happening in Africa or in South America. Right, yeah. Um, but it's the happening The human-animal right conflict here. is an ongoing yeah. issue everywhere, yeah. In San Diego County, right here. So that was really tragic. We knew from her GPS data that she was probably denning with kittens. Um, And we knew this because if you look at the data, the data are just points, points in in space and time. And there was a cluster of points in a particular area. And there's really only a couple of reasons that a mountain lion would be going back and forth, coming back to that specific area. And based on the timing and the time of year, we figured she probably had kittens. So we found out from our Department of Fish and Wildlife partners that she had been killed. And that very same night, the UC Davis team and our team got together and we talked about a plan because we figured we were going to try and go in and see if we could find these kittens. We didn't know how old they would be. We didn't know how many there would be. And they were in a very remote area. So we had to get access from the landowner. And uh, they were really great working with them. Oh, good. And they were able to give us permission to access the property really quickly. We put together a team, and over the course of about a week, every day, some of our team members would be up there looking for these kittens. And it was like a needle in a haystack. We ended up finding three kittens. And the average litter size is three to four. So we figured that we probably got all of them. Right. We put out trail cameras all over the area. We had traps, you know, just like live traps. Yeah. Baited with all kinds of goodies to try and bait these kittens in. And just for the kids that are listening, these traps are the type that just restrain and keep them in a, like, exactly. it's like a, a have a heart carrier or something that yeah. closes in on them once they, they go in. It's not something that's going to hurt them. Exactly. They actually were have a heart traps. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. there you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I mean, not, no advertisement necessarily, but um, yeah, that's exactly right. I had kind of expected that they would be in a den. Yeah. You know, I've seen videos of this and stuff that they would be back in a rocky crack and we'd find them. And we'd pull them out yeah. and yay, they'd all be together. <laughs> but these kittens were mobile. Oh. And we found the first one on Saturday at about 11 o'clock, the first day that we were out in the field. 
And one of the amazing field biologists with the mountain lion project was able to locate it. Wow. It was uh, about a hundred yards away from the last GPS point cluster of the female. So it was a needle in a haystack. Wow. We put cameras on that den site. We didn't get anything. Uh, later in the afternoon, when we were setting up cameras, myself and another biologist from the Mount Lion Project found the second kitten. Oh. So we had two males that we had found within the first day in two completely different locations. Wow. And then we spent several days out there looking. We got an image of another kitten on one of the cameras overnight. And we went back, looked, we couldn't find it. And then the next day we were able to find it. So it was a pretty intense adventure yeah. for an entire week, but we were able to locate those three. Where have the kittens ended up? Well, <laughs> they're right here at the safari park. They're uh, in the Harder Hospital right now. And uh, maybe we'll go and have a look yeah, after we're good. done here <laughs> and see if we can take a peep at them. That's great. It really it speaks to the collaborative work too, you know, all of us being able to work together to help out these three little cubs. That's Absolutely. great. Yeah, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife the UC Davis Mountain Lion Project and our project all came together and everybody put in a ton of work. And we were really lucky, but we also had a crack team working yeah, on it. Sounds so that way. It, was, it was really cool. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it's definitely a sad occurrence of right. what happened to the mother. And obviously we would rather that she'd been able to raise her young and they could continue on about their business. But also, I mean, how fortunate that it was in a space that she was being monitored and the team could go out and rescue those kittens. So for, for given the situation, what a, what a wonderful outcome for the kids at least. Yeah, the retaliatory killings happen more frequently than, than we'd like. And you can imagine if she didn't have a GPS collar on, right. we would never would have been able to find those yeah. kittens. We wouldn't have even known they existed. Yeah, no kidding. Another great example of why this space is so important. Yeah, right. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> Well, Charlie, I want to I want to thank you, and I know Marco really appreciates you. Marco's been out here with you a couple times. This space I've been out in a few times. It's so beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know, Marco. What do you think? We we talked to a lot of people who are like, I'm the luckiest person with this job, but I'm looking around. Going, this know. is this is Charlie's yeah. office. And you know what I noticed? You guys, we've been sort of like whispering this whole time. That well, it's almost like this area demands our respect. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. out in wild spaces, we're right? all connected to it. And you kids out there listening right now, you guys are connected to it too, right, Charlie? I mean, they're right. this is for them also. So. It was just an incredible day. It's always a beautiful day at the Safari Park, but especially, Charlie, uh, kudos. Give me some knuckles. This is wonderful. <laughs> yes, thank you, Charlie. I love going out in the field with you guys. Yeah, man, it's great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Wow. <laughs> what a day out of the Biodiversity Reserve with Charlie. Marco, as we wrap this up, I want to let our audience know that we are back in the studio, and even though we are, I can't help but feel the wonder of our time out there with Charlie. Oh, I know, Rick. I completely agree. You know, my only regret is we didn't have more time to hear more of his amazing stories. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's just, there's so many different things we could talk about when it comes to habitat like that. Oh, exactly. I, I know exactly how you feel. And I mean, I am glad that we were able to touch the surface of so many different things going on out there, which is one way to share with our audience all that is happening out in nature. But you're right. I would love to go out there again and do more in-depth stories on the diversity of, well, just even all the reptiles he mentioned, or, or yes, Marco, even the birds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely the birds. And honestly, it sounds to me like we need to start scheduling things for season three of Amazing Wildlife so we can include more details of some of these awesome stories. Yeah, I completely agree, my friend. And I hope we can do a follow-up story about those cougar cubs or, or puma cubs, as Charlie called them. 
Well, Rick, you know, it's been about a week since we were out there with Charlie, so I do have a little update about them. If you think our audience would like to know. Uh, yes. I mean, if nothing else, I want to know. <laughs> right? Well, the last time I was able to check in in all three of them, they are doing very well and growing at an appropriate and healthy rate. In fact, the wildlife care specialist told me they become very comfortable and quite adventurous. Oh, man, it's so good to hear that they're doing well and have settled into being under our care after losing their mother. It's kind of sad, but it's also nice to know her legacy will live on through her offspring. But even better to hear that they are thriving and doing so well. Yeah, totally. I mean, it really, really is. And what a great way to wrap up season two. I mean, we've talked about all the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance conservation hubs all over the world and interviewed conservationists, wildlife care specialists, technology experts that work for wildlife and so much more. And then here we are, right? Here we are right in our own backyard, wrapping things up with a story that, like Charlie said, could easily be compared to a leopard in India or a lion in Africa or a jaguar in South America. Mm -hmm. These cubs are a great reminder for all of us that we share this world with all wildlife and we must keep doing what we can to find a balance for all of us. Yeah, absolutely right. Well said, amigo, well said. No, thank you, sir. Thank you. And, you know, we're starting to wrap this up, of course, going to close out this episode. But before we do, I just kind of I'm feeling a little nostalgic. You know, we are at the last episode of season two. We've had a great time this year. But I want to ask you, Marco, do you have a particular or favorite episode that sticks out from this season in your mind? Oh, man, it's really hard to pick just one. And I know everyone is going to think I'm going to pick a bird episode, the vulture, well, course, <laughs> the vulture right? episode. Yeah, right? oh, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say. I totally get it. And it's honestly not that one. Sorry, Jonna, you did an amazing job. I love the Vultures <laughs> episode. But, you know, I think it's because I was so excited to start season two with you, Rick, and I had such an amazing time. Yeah. It's all about episode one for me for season two, the butterflies. Oh. Right? Yeah, I learned so much. And, you know, it's a really cool representation of our collaboration within the teams of the bird department, horticulture, everyone getting together to put on something just magnificent for our guests. Yeah. But what about you, man? What's your favorite? I you know I've been thinking about this because I knew I was going to ask you, and yeah. several come to mind. I really enjoyed the koala one with Jen Toby and learning about how all the work she's done at the zoo has really helped a lot with the koalas in the wild. But then I jump over to the the little mouse that matters and the pocket mouse because oh. you had set that up so well with all these little teasers and <laughs> clues right. along the way. But then honestly, I have to say I landed on our lion episode. I think it was like probably two or three somewhere in the beginning, also because right. technology allowed us to talk to and interview somebody who was all the way over in Kenya. You could hear the wind blowing through her tent because she's there doing the conservation work. And right. I just thought, you know, when I was growing up, the idea of being able to converse with somebody on the other side of the planet like that, <laughs> real time, it's just, it was a great, great experience. But yeah, I loved it, man. Absolutely loved it. Oh, totally, man. It's been such a great adventure, Rick. I'm just super stoked for season three, too. I just can't wait. Yeah, me too. Me too. And and as we, again, we're wrapping this up. So we usually wrap up an episode with a little tease about the next episode. But since this is the last episode of season two, we'll just say be sure to subscribe so you get notified when the new season starts. I'm Marco Lent. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. For more information about the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, go to sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios. Our supervising producer is Nakia Swinton, and our sound designer and editor is Sierra Spreen. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.